Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alice and Balance aho. I hope you're sticking with the program and staying safe and well in your bubbles in week two at level three. Later on, we are going viral with the Our Changing World archives again. But first up, weeks of being stuck at home has got me thinking about what is this place that we call home? I bet most of us still describe New Zealand as an island especially in these coronavirus times when being a small, isolated landmass does have its advantages. But back pre-lockdown, I caught up with a couple of geologists. They were among a group meeting in Wellington to discuss some exciting findings from a scientific voyage aboard the Joides Resolution drilling ship back in 2017. This was the same year Zealandia was accepted as the world's smallest continent. That's right, folks, we are not an island. To find out more, let's catch up with Kiwi Rupert Sutherland and American Jerry Dickens. Here's Rupert. So Zealandia is a, a big continent. It's about twice the size of India, and it stretches off around New Zealand all the way up to New Caledonia and all the way south down past Campbell Island into the subantarctic. And it's quite a new continent in the sense new and recognising it. Yeah, it's really the most recently recognised continent. And it was discovered like in, the, in really in the 1960s and 1970s, I suppose, when they did lots of seafloor mapping. But it wasn't really recognised formally as a continent until very recently. And why was that? What was our former definition of a continent that excluded it? The thing that really changed was the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which is about sovereignty over the seabed. And... When the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea was ratified in, I think it was 1994, then all the countries in the world went out to try and put their continental boundaries down on the seabed. And so Zealandia was an interesting one because it has bits of France, New Caledonia, and Australia, with Lord Howe Island, Macquarie Island, those sorts of places, and of course New Zealand. And so there was a lot of effort put in to surveying the continent and to really thinking about it. And actually, whether something is continental is actually a fundamental part of the law of the sea. The definition of continent is interesting that most people think of a continent as a large block of, of land. But of course, that gets complicated because if, once you get off the coast and go out, you're still on the continent. It just happens to be flooded. And so... For instance, my own continent in North America, about 30% is underwater. Think of large stretches off New Zealand or all around Florida. Once you get to the coastline, it still goes for 100 uh, kilometers or so before you actually get to the edge of the continent, so it's a little bit underwater. And an interesting way to think about that is for much of, let's say, the last million years, that really was continent because when we had ice sheets, 
the water from the sea goes up, and so the old coastline is effectively very close to the true continent. That's a little bit different in, in Zealandia, though, because most of the continent itself sits at about an average depth of, well, maybe 1,000 meters below water, but it's still continental crust, and so it's the material that makes up land. And so across our surface, we have both continents and oceans at the basic level where, where the oceans are these deep areas and the continents are the shallow areas, uh, with some of it being flooded. And so it just happens what makes New Zealand different is so much of it is underwater, something 94% or so is, is underwater, unlike, you know, U.S. Uh, or North America being, you know, 70% above water. What do we know about Zealandia in terms of what it is geologically then? That's actually a very good question, and that was the whole point of why we went on the drilling expedition. We know quite a lot about the geology of New Zealand and New Caledonia and some of the small little islands that, that crop out. But most of Zealandia is underwater, as Jerry just said. So it's covered in a veneer of sediment, which is why you have to drill to try and find out what's deeper down underneath that sediment. And so that's what we were doing. So quickly remind me of that expedition. This was a 2017 expedition on board Joydes Resolution. Yes, that's right. So it was on the uh, Joydes Resolution, which is a, a drill ship, which is operated by the United States, by Texas A&M University. And it's part of the platforms that operate as part of the International Ocean Discovery Program. And that's an international collaboration that goes out to explore the oceans for all sorts of different reasons. And so we went out for nine weeks out into the northern part of Zealandia to drill six sites and collect a bunch of new information about what Zealandia is made of. And that was for the purpose of several scientific goals that were more than just looking at Zealandia, but actually trying to understand some fundamental earth processes. Such as how Zealandia formed? More fundamental than that, because how Zealandia formed is fundamental to understanding how other continents formed as well. So tell me a bit more about that. A lot of Zealandia is underwater. And if you were to look at other continents on Earth, you would see that at least 50% of their surface area is characterised by low-lying land or shallow seas, very shallow seas, just a few, you know, a couple of hundred metres deep or less. But those continents, they have continental slopes which go down into the deep ocean. So more than half the surface area of Earth is characterised by water depths more than 3,000 metres deep. And the oceans have quite different geology to the continents. And what are the processes which make the geography of continents the way that they are is a fundamental question of of earth sciences and Zealandia is very unusual because it has 90% of its surface area is basically its continental slope and so we really get a chance to understand how that process is of how that happens and why Zealandia is the way it is gives us insight into how other continents now and in the past have formed. So what do you think is the story of how Zealandia formed? At a basic level um Zealandia, Australia, and Antarctica were all connected about oh, 100-plus million years ago. And so it was one continent, and then it started, Zealandia split off from the other two, and then eventually Australia and Antarctica separated. And we've known that for a while, that you have three sort of blocks, each continent. It's just most people weren't considering Zealandia its own continent. And then a funny thing happens is, is around 50 million years or so, that process of separating Zealandia from Australia and Antarctica stops. 
And then that's where the whole Zealandia gets truly fascinating because it, it's not like it just stops. It, it starts going through compression and uplift. And so parts of Zealandia are, are moving up and parts are going down and, and it becomes a very complicated continent. And that's all happening, starts around, uh, you know, 50 plus million years and then continues. And that's something we're trying to figure exactly when it ends and when what part. And so that was a major objective of the cruise. In fact, what we've been talking about the last couple of days here in, in, in Wellington. You had an international <clears throat> crew of scientists on the boat and you have been meeting. So what are the kinds of things you've been meeting and talking about? We've been talking through all of the analyses that have been that have been done over the last two years on all the samples that we collected. So obviously you go out into the middle of the ocean, you collect sediment cores from deep beneath the seabed and you do a huge amount of work just on the basic description of those and you come off the ship and you've got this book basically that you've already written by the time you've come off it but in order to really understand what's going on back in the past you need to then take some samples from those cores back to the lab and do all sorts of clever analyses on them, looking at the fossils in more detail, maybe even dissolving them up and finding out what the chemistry is to reconstruct things like, um, you know, past water temperatures and all sorts of stuff like that. And so because it's the International Ocean Discovery Program, people have disappeared off to all different countries all around the world, which makes it quite difficult to communicate. I mean, we do communicate um, by email and stuff, but there's no substitute really for getting together and actually talking through all of the painstaking analyses that have been done over the last two years. So are you beginning to get a a sense, like a picture of what bits went up when and what bits went down when and why they were doing that? Yes, and that's really one of the fundamental discoveries, I suppose, of our expedition, is that we... So Jerry told you about how Zealandia separated from... Um, the other parts of Gondwana and that during the sort of the time of the dinosaurs quite a long time ago. And I guess it's since about the 1970s, people had thought that Zealandia had basically just subsided deep into the ocean at that time and just hadn't really done much afterwards. But what we've really proved on our, on our expedition is that that's not true, that all sorts of stuff happened um, between about 50 and 20 million years ago. And We've just published a paper that really documents that and proposes some ideas for why that's the case. So the thing that we're pretty clear about is that it's in some way related to the formation of the Pacific Ring of Fire. That's the ring of volcanoes. It comes from the volcanoes, but those volcanoes are related to a process which geologists call subduction, which is where one plate subsides and sinks deep back into the mantle. And that the gravitational force of that sinking is what pulls plates around. And as it goes down, it releases volatiles and triggers melting and creates volcanoes. It also creates the really big earthquakes that generate the big tsunamis, for example. So this zone of earthquakes and volcanoes that goes all the way around the rim of the Pacific is, is called the Pacific Ring of Fire named after its volcanoes, really, but it's, it's really, for our perspective, the interesting thing is that it's where this, these plate boundaries are, where plates are coming together. And those are what really drive everything on Earth. They drive how the plates move, which in turn drives the types of volcanoes that you have, the earthquakes, the natural resources, the climate, because it affects the whole geochemical cycles of the planet. And so understanding how the Pacific Ring of Fire formed 
and how these subduction zones are created is was really that was the key scientific question that we wanted to address for me what's exciting because i am not in the field of tectonics at least in our field for a long time we just sort of thought of the ocean as a bathtub and it's just there and water goes up and down but what we've started to really learn, and, and it's just highlighted uh, very strongly in this particular expedition, is no, the bathtub's changing shape, and the bottom's going up, and parts are going deeper, and and so it's this very complex world we live in, and, and that gives you a completely different view on how to interpret, for example, past climate records and, and many other parameters if we're suddenly in a world where the bottom of the bathtub is, is moving around and the sides are changing dimensions. and Well, we knew that uh, uh, for a while, but, but it's more the, the, the seafloor is, is changing, and that to me is fascinating. So. so for me, the really fascinating thing that what we found is that we can now date exactly how certain parts of this process, uh, we can date when they happened, and that gives us a real insight into why it happened. So... What we do know is that the tectonic plates changed motion during this event. So Australia, for example, started to move rapidly northwards away from Antarctica after about 44 million years ago. And at almost exactly the same time, the southern part of Zealandia split in two and created an ocean, which is the edge of the Campbell Plateau. So that was about 44 million years ago. Now, The interesting thing is we see a series of things happening before 44 million years ago. And so it seems like actually that the first signs of the Pacific Ring of Fire really being created were more like 50 million years ago or even slightly before. And that's fascinating because that predates the changes in tectonic plate motion. So there's another factor that's interesting as well, and that is that with this geological evidence that these zones have resurrected ancient zones that were similar to that in the past. So in other words, there, was, there is evidence in New Zealand of older subduction systems that were active for many hundreds of millions of years, actually, and died before 100 million years ago. And it seems like the new subduction zone was created in pretty much the same place as where this old subduction was before. That's a very fascinating result. So this is a new idea, Yes, and and further to what I was just saying about um, the resurrection of subduction zones, how? How do you do that? You know, how do you actually start them moving in? How do you give them that push? Exactly. And so what we think, what we proposed just recently is that that these are zones which are primed and ready to go. You know, they, they clearly could go in the past, but for whatever reason they stopped. But they are ready to go. They have weaknesses. They have gravity contrasts, you know, they, they want to sink back down into the, into the mantle. But they're not. They're being held there because they're too strong. For, for some reason, they're, they're sitting there and they're too strong to start moving. But what we do know is now from our expedition is that they all started moving at about the same time. Like, geologically, it's almost instantaneous. We can't really resolve the difference. And so that's fascinating because we're talking about 10,000 kilometres of Pacific Rim that all suddenly just reactivated and started working again. So it wasn't even like it was a ripple effect that started in one place and then slowly worked its way around the Pacific? Well, yes, it probably was. So that's quite a good analogy. Uh, The analogy that I would like to make, I suppose, and it may not be a particularly good analogy, but it may be one which helps people to understand, is like an earthquake, right? If you have a geological fault and it's got stresses that have accumulated across it, but it's not moving 
because for whatever it's too strong. But then if it starts moving in one little place, once you get a nucleation of an earthquake in one place, the energy that's released as it starts to move and the weakening processes that occur during that initial movement allow it to then move just next to that place. And eventually that can spread across the whole fault plane until the whole fault has moved and released all the energy in an earthquake. And that happens dynamically, happens very quickly. And so we think that, it, okay, it wasn't an earthquake. It, wasn't, it didn't happen in like a minute. You know, it probably took a million years for it to happen. But it moved... It's still quite fast geologically yeah. speaking. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, a million years is like a blink of an eye for a lot of geologists. So probably in a pretty short amount of time, geologically speaking, these subduction zones were, that were primed and ready to go, once it started moving for whatever reason in one place, that then spread and started all the rest moving dynamically. And so that spread around the whole of the Pacific in a pretty short time geologically, and then everything started to move. And further to that, well, things started to move, and it's only after a certain amount of time there's a delayed reaction. There's a delayed reaction because the forces grow as the plate movement increases, because I can't think of a good analogy for this, but you know, if you have a slab of rock that's sinking down into the middle of the earth, the bigger that that slab gets, the bigger the force, the bigger the weight that's trying to pull the plate along. And so it took time for that force to grow and then change the plate motions, which is why it's so fascinating to try and analyse the events which occurred before the plate motion changes and try and understand that. And I, that, to me, that's been one of the really fascinating discoveries, is that we've been able to do that. We've been able to identify those things in the southern part of the Pacific Ring of Fire and compare it to the ages in the north. And we find that they're about the same. We're sort of at the tip of the iceberg right now uh, with a different view of how this part of the world works. And it's probably going to take many years to f- more fully figure it out, but just the, the revolution sort of started now. So what we haven't figured out yet is what the full implications are of what we've discovered because we've been focused on the problem of how the forces that drive the, the engine of the earth you know, moves everything around. That's, that was our primary science goal. But what we've discovered is that the northern part of the continent of Zealandia changed shape very dramatically. So something like the New Caledonia Trough. New Caledonia Trough is a feature which is 2,500 kilometres long and 300 kilometres across. It's a million square kilometres in size. And that subsided by several kilometres during this event in a short period of time. At the same time, a similar size area, the Lord Howe Rise, just next to it, again, a million square kilometres, was lifted up by a kilometre and areas that had been deep underwater became land and shallow seas. Well, that's got lots of implications. It's got implications for how the ocean currents could move, for the climate, for how animals and plants could migrate. There's a lot of implications, even for how evolution occurs of those animals and plants because of the conditions that they're subjected to. Thanks, Rupert. Rupert Sutherland is at Victoria University of Wellington. We also heard from Jerry Dickens, who's at Rice University in the United States. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori. Hei hōtaka e pānaki a papa tuanuku, tangaroa, me rangi nui. I'm Alison Balance, and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ National. Now, a viral blast from the past, reminding us that there are many viruses 
infecting many kinds of organisms. Veronica Maduna recorded this story about Argentine ants in 2015 with Phil Lester and Alexandra Sebastian at Victoria University of Wellington. Argentine ants are one of the world's 100 worst invasive species. They're now on every continent of the world except Antarctica. Um, where they occur, they can occur in massive densities. So, so you get large populations of these ants um, that dominate the landscape, that uh, kill off other native ants within the area and farm aphids, scale, mealybug, those sorts of things. So they, they can be a really big problem where they occur. So they displace native ants, but they also cause havoc in all areas, really. Mm, yeah, they're, they're known, some people refer to them as the Genghis Khan of the ant world. right? So they come along and they um, kill off all their competitors and, and, and other species within the area and take over the landscape. Then they'll do things like um, tend aphids on, on trees and, and plants. So the aphids exude some honeydew and the ants will feed on that and, the, and in return they offer protection for the aphids. Your most recent project was to look at the ants' own microbiome, so the kind of microbes and viruses that they carry. What motivated that? Well, what we've been doing is um, looking at um, populations of Argentines around the country for well over a decade now. So some populations around the country do fine. Probably the majority of populations around the country do fine. They, they persist for a, over a decade. They, they do really well. Other populations, like the one in Kelvin, just not very far from here, um, we saw get to be several hectares in size, large abundance of ants, and then so slowly shrink and disappear. And why? There might be many reasons for that, for, the, for them to disappear, but, but the, one of the reasons that we wanted to focus on, well, is there a pathogen, and specifically is there a, a virus or viruses that are associated with that sort of decline? So we've been especially looking at viruses because viruses have been involved in multiple population decline in other species, and them being a terrible pest, it would be a good idea to find out how to kill them with natural ways and try maybe at length to develop a biocontrol. So if they had a pathogen yes. already in their viral load, they yes. could be used for that? Exactly. If we, in the end, manage to find a virus in the ants, in the Argentine ants, that is actually specific to the ants, that could be nasty, nefast to the ants, and then at length maybe develop something that might be more efficient as a biocontrol to try not to use chemicals. So at length that would be the reason why we looked at viruses in Argentine ants. How do you go about it? Is it a matter of a genetic search? Do you look for the viral genes? So what we did uh, was actually beg for samples from other countries and have friends sending us ca samples from different countries to have enough information and data from different places. And then we traveled around New Zealand also to get samples. And with all those ants, we ground them and we took RNA out of it and out of all this RNA and with the new technology that is highly expensive but gives you lots of data and information, we've been able, thanks to another lab working with virus and specialized on virus, to identify a few sequences that would be highly interesting, RNA sequences, and that from those sequences we identified a few viruses, including our new virus, Love One. That's the one that you might be having some hope for it to be useful as a, so as a control agent, really. Yes. We're kind of hoping that when we grab other species, insects, um, wasps, bees, especially bees, um, that are foraging around ants, that we will not find it in other species. 
So our hope is that we will only find it in Argentinians and kind of hoping that it's highly specific to that species and that's why if it is specific we could use it as a biocontrol later on. Now the other virus you found is the the wing deforming virus which tell me is it the same that is in bees and wasps as well is it the same strain? Yeah, yeah, it is. So um, uh, the deformed wing virus, that's the other one we found in Argentine ants. And we found that in 22 out of 27 populations that we sampled around the country. Um, The deformed wing virus is a particularly nasty one. Uh, It does affect honeybees. It seems to be primarily uh, transmitted to honeybees in New Zealand by varroa mites. So the varroa mite is the primary cause of honeybees having deformed wing virus. What we've done uh, in so far is, is sample deformed wing virus out of honeybees, out of wasps, and out of these ants now, and we've all found the same strain. So it's the same strain of the deformed wing virus that's present in all of these organisms. It seems likely to have originated from varroa mites, but these results are suggestive that, that hey, Argentine ants now are a, a, another reservoir of this virus in, in the big wide world. So these ants become abundant, they're highly widespread, highly abundant, and are another big reservoir for this virus. So it kind of turns the Argentine ant into a double-decker pest in mm. some way, that it's a pest in its own right, but it also carries something that could become an issue yeah. with other yep. species, beneficial insects. Yeah, and I think that's, that's for us, it's one of the more interesting results out of this study. In terms of when we see an invasive species come into the country, like an ant, or maybe a stink bug, which is a, something that's threatening our borders, when a, a species comes into the country, we, we tend to look at that and think, well, that's just... An, an ant. It's just an individual species, but it's not just an individual species. It's it's got a whole microbiome associated with it: pathogens, symbionts, all those sorts of things, bacteria, viruses, um, and some of those are going to may may well be deleterious to it or other organisms in the environment. But once that invasive species gets here, it's also can soak up pathogens from the surrounding environment and, and be a reservoir for those. So it's not just an ant that comes in the country, it's, it's a microbial diversity associated with it and that it can be a reservoir as well. How close do the ants intact with, say, honeybees or other beneficial mm-hmm. insects? Do they come close enough to swap pathogens? Obviously you've just alerted yeah. to them that they can pick up yep. pathogen load. Yep. So there's been quite a bit of work um, both here and um, uh, mostly overseas looking at on flowers, for example. One honeybee that's infected with a parasite comes and forages on a flower. When it's doing that, it leaves some disease behind it. So the next thing that comes along and forages on that flower can then pick up disease from that. So we know that in 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 any environment, we do see this pathogen exchange going on. And things like um, in the Britain, quite recently, there's some work that's showing that deformed wing virus, where it's high in honeybees, it's high in bumblebees because you know they're foraging in the same environment. There's that sort of exchange going on. With Argentine ants as well, um, in New Zealand, we're getting increasing numbers of reports of Argentine ants raiding beehives directly. So they go and they steal the honey. At times, they'll ignore the honey and just take the larvae out of those. So, so they're a major, can be a major pest of, of, of beehives as well. Phil Lester and Alexander Sebastian were both at Victoria University of Wellington in 2015 when this story first went to air. And that's all we have time for. But you can listen again anytime you'd like on the Our Changing World webpage, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. 
We're on Facebook and Twitter too, where we are RNZ Science. Stay safe and stay sticking in your bubble to make sure that we've got COVID-19 truly beat. Thanks heaps for your company. But for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.